Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, April 13th. Before I run you through the weekend storylines from the professional tennis world, before I talk you through what topics I'm going to be hitting on this week's Mini Break podcast, I have to, of course, remind you that these shows are made possible by our friends at Diadem Sports, and you've heard it before. Diadem Sports is helping tennis players across the globe elevate their game by designing the most innovative performance tennis gear on the planet. The rackets were developed with your performance in mind, each racket carefully crafted for a specific type of playing style, whether your game commands power and explosiveness, precision and control. They'll have the best options to help take your game to the next level. And you guys may have heard this story before as listeners to our Crack Rackets podcast, but today being April 13th, it's the three-year anniversary of when Max Rothman, Kaushik Kandapi, Kevin Rothstein, Laura Ukros-Teas, Chelsea U, Carrie, who and I went down to Orlando and won ourselves a club t- tennis national title. Now, you may have also heard in that story in the national final that day, Rothman and I took our first loss of our senior year in our men's doubles set. We dropped that after racing out to a 2-0 lead, having multiple game points. I think we had five game points in the next five games. We dropped that set, um, but... It's because I wasn't serving well, and maybe if I had the Elevate 98 to accentuate the precision and control I like to use on serve, I wouldn't have double faulted as much, so I wish I made the switch. I'm currently wearing just the most stylish diadem hoodie. It's so comfortable. It it makes me feel good. It's helped get me through these quarantine days knowing that I can work in comfort, and you know, again, you go to their website right now, diademsports.com, and use our promo code CR50. You'll get 50% off your order, so you can get the racket that'll help bring out the best in your game you can get some stylish clothes you know premier tennis balls as well along the way and of course they are so supportive to us here at Crack Rackets the least we can do is ask you to go support them so diademsports.com use that promo code CR50 now let's get into the news from this weekend because you know we continue to hear more tricklings of cancellations or postponements of events that are even beyond the current ATP WTA deadline of July 13th uh, deadlines the wrong word that's when they are planning right now scheduled to resume activity on the tour and of course that's a very speculative date it's already been moved back once I don't think it would surprise anyone if it's moved back again we are obviously all much more concerned with getting the world safe healthy back to normal over Over this coronavirus pandemic, I know I keep saying that, but I feel like it bears repeating every time. Uh, But in terms of how it's impacted the tennis world, we had more cancellations of events this week at multiple levels. Let's start with the Rogers Cup. 
who announced that following the measures imposed by government authorities in the province of Quebec, Tennis Canada announces the postponement of the Rogers Cup in Montreal. The tournament will take place from August 6th to 15th, 2021, as Montreal will host the women's event. Now, again, let's talk about this and where we go from here. Um, you know, Tennis Canada has been closely, just to continue to give you things from the statement, it was scheduled for August 7th to 16th, and you know, that's a month after the ATP WTA deadline, and they're already canceling this event now, whether it's for insurance purposes or not, that's another discussion. But what that tells me is, A, you know, even if they thought maybe we were going to be able to play the event, certainly it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to do it with fans, and B, they're not sure they're going to be able to play the event. So they're taking the proactive move. They, uh, move. they open up the spot in the calendar for other tournaments, which, of course, is just a classy move by Tennis Canada. But if at the, you know, from the ten- tournament director, Eugene Lapierre, if at the beginning of the crisis we were hoping that the situation would be resolved in time to be able to host our tournament as initially planned on the calendar, but we knew that the chances were getting smaller and smaller in recent weeks, their priority in the management of this crisis has always been to ensure the safety and well-being of their players, fans, volunteers, partners, and employees. It is thus with a heavy heart that we received this news, but we understand that this decision was necessary. Uh, they go on to thank their clients, their partners, and assure everyone that they will work tirelessly to ensure that the tournament will come back in the future. Now, uh, it, it's really nice for them. They invite everyone who purchased tickets uh, that their tickets will be valid in the August 2021 tournament. Um, but look, this is a significant development for Tennis Canada, and, and they even talk about it in the uh, release that they had from Michael Downey, the president and CEO of Tennis Canada. Rogers Cup is the engine of tennis development in Canada. 90% of the money, again, 90% of the money that we successfully invest in the development of our sport each year comes from the profits of our tournament. It goes without saying that the 2020 will be a very difficult year for our organization. We anticipate repercussions that will be felt over the course of the next few years. However, we know that we are privileged to be able to count on passionate employees as well as on loyal clients and partners who will help us during this rebuild period. That's devastating. 90% of the money for Tennis Canada gone with just a snap of the fingers. And, of course, tennis right now producing so many talents from FAA, Shapovalov, Leila Fernandez, Bianca Andreescu, and more. And Tennis Canada has lost 90% of their revenue for this year. All of those training camps, the indoor facilities, all of the things you want to do, it's just an, imp- it's an impossibility for Tennis Canada right now. And it's crushing. I mentioned this, I think, last week. I know how much the USTA relies on the U.S. Open for to pay for everything they do around the country tennis-wise. And should the US, Op- U.S. Open be canceled or postponed or just have the revenue impacted in any sort of way, it'll be a, crush- a crushing blow. I mean, you're going to see, again, the economic impact of this virus are going to be tremendous for so many tennis organizations, so many federations across the globe, that the French Federation is able to actually give money to coaches, players, and different clubs throughout the country. That is so monumental. That will be so impactful. Uh, but not every organization is going to be able to do that, and it's a scary time for Tennis Canada, and so that that's obviously some bum news uh, that we 
we got this weekend. We also learned that the Binghamton Challenger was postponed, or it's not going to take place this year. They moved to 2021 as well, postponed, canceled, whatever you want to say. This is an event that's also scheduled after that ATP WTA deadline. This is a late July event. Uh, and they're just proactively canceling. And, of course, Binghamton in the New York area. We all know what's going on in New York right now, one of the hot spots around the globe. Um, but that's certainly, again, July 13th is very tentative right now with all these events still canceling, with so much just not known. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a continuing to develop story uh, because I think I, we're going to learn more and more, obviously, and you know who's going to be comfortable traveling around the world playing tennis. Is that even going to be in a, a possibility uh, come the end of July? We are not sure, and certainly, again, these cancellations showing more and more uh, that the rest of the world, tennis-related, isn't sure either. Let's flip the script to some positive news now. We learned this past weekend that Katrina Adams, uh, the former USA president, of course, uh, had tested positive in early March with coronavirus. Now, uh, the good news is that she is now coronavirus-free, and she talks about, she said, look, I was in close contact with someone who contracted the virus, found out on Monday or Tuesday that they had it, and she's been in isolation ever since. Uh, She then tested positive for the disease herself, but you know, took the immediate precautionary tales. And, you know, she talks about, you know, the brighter side is that I then become a candidate to donate my plasma to save the lives of others as my antibodies are extremely high. I was infected for a reason. And this photo reminds me that good will come from my misfortune. In reality, it was a blessing that I can now make a difference for someone else. And if you weren't a fan of Katrina Adams before, you certainly should be now. That is the exact sort of attitude that I think so many of us have learned to expect from her because of her her grace, her dignity, her intelligence. She is just a phenomenal human, and we are so lucky as tennis players, as the tennis community, to have her as a part of it. And, of course, we are so happy to hear uh, that she is healthy and will be healthy moving forward. And, um, you know, again, uh, we're just that's excellent news. So it's nice that we could get a, a little tidbit of good news in an otherwise gloomy time. I do want to talk about a little bit of other news. Ann Worcester, the tennis pioneer, of course, UTR president, uh, former chief executive of the WTAs, wrote a piece talking about why it's time uh, for the men's and women's tours to join forces for the greater good of the sport. She said, in my 35 years of tennis, I've never seen anything like this, referring to the coronavirus. I've always believed that the right thing for tennis is for there to be one entity and one commissioner with plenty of independence in all of the right ways ways. I do think that the silver lining of this crisis will be increased collaboration. To what extent, I don't know. I always say crisis reduces smugness and really increases the sense of collaboration. If tennis is going to come out of this and compete, we've really got to get it right this time around. This piece found in Forbes, uh, written by Daniel Rossing. Uh, She goes on to explain why she thinks one organization uh, would be beneficial. She goes on to explain why it hasn't happened before. what those changes uh, would look like, how they would be implemented. It's a fantastic piece. Of course, she talks about the market for tennis right now. I don't want to give away the entire piece. Again, go to Forbes.com to read that. The article titled Tennis Pioneer and Worcester Advocating for United Tennis Tours to Navigate Coronavirus 
for coronavirus crisis. It's an excellent piece, so be sure to go give that a look. Uh, what else do we have? The first episode of Tennis United, speaking of which, the joined ATP WTA show where they bring on personalities from across the professional tennis world week one. That was Sophia Kennan, Vashik Pospisil, Felix Ocherali Asim, and of course, our friend Bethany B. Dogmatic Sands on the show. Uh, they're hoping to do it weekly on Friday, so be on the lookout for that. It's really cool content. Again, anything to get connected with these tennis stars at this point feels good. So shout out to them for that sort of idea. I'm sure Dalton is thinking, ugh can't believe they beat us to it uh but that's awesome so good for them uh what has colette lewis been up to because that's always a good topic here on the mini break one of the best if not the queen of tennis social media she got the chance to sit down uh with both dave mullins as well as one of the first uh people who have signed up for the tennis in uh, one of the first fellows i should say in the tennis for america service program which we have talked about here in the past but tennis for america based on a year of service model that provides 12 months of paid full-time community work for young Americans transitioning from college to professional careers. They've got multiple funding and donors, but the ITA began to put together a plan in place, uh, in place a dozen recent college graduates with five community tennis centers across the country, uh, in one in New York, College Park, Access in Chicago, Sloan Stevens Foundation in Compton, California, and the Border Youth Tennis Exchange in Tucson, Arizona. They selected six fellows already, uh, and they are getting ready to begin their year of service. Obviously, the stay-at-home orders and the uncertainty surrounding the resumption of tennis leaves that a little bit in limbo now, but Colette goes on to talk about that to talk with some of the fellows in her piece for TennisRecruiting.net. Be sure to go check that out. She also wrote a fantastic piece on Tennis Kalamazoo blog, her blog, of course, about the 1984 Kalamazoo Championship. And for those people who are like, well, why is that an interesting year? I'll tell you, and she tells you as well. You had players like Jay Berger, who became top seven, Robbie Weiss, Brad Perch, Pat McEnroe, Richie Reneberg, uh, and so many more in that event in the end. And it was a guy by the name of Ricky Brown, the 10 seed, the 215 player in the world, uh, who ends up getting to a career high of 215, who takes home the title of this event, Ricky Brown Relevant. Because he was one of my coaches growing up, grew up at my local club, uh, sports club of West Bloomfield. He was a coach there. Uh, and the reason I bring that up again is because another person from my hometown, Amy Frazier, who many of you might remember, I think she played something like 18 consecutive U.S. Opens, which is obviously a record. Um, or maybe Venus has surpassed that record now, to be honest. But uh, we're bringing Amy Frazier on the Cracked Interviews podcast this week. So thought I'd give you guys a little bit of a tease there. Uh, but it's really cool that Colette looks back at these tournaments she breaks down what happened what the big upsets were and you know it's it's just really cool it's a nice piece of content something uh, obviously in a time like this I appreciated reading so shout out to Colette Lewis one of the best in the business uh, but that's the news now let's get to today's topic and I know again you know 15 minutes of news 10 minutes of news what do you expect it was a weekend we had three days of news to talk about but this week on the mini break podcast I want to be doing something different now Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. 
Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. We will still have Technique Tuesday tomorrow with, I believe, Austin Rapp of My Tennis HQ. We're going to be talking about volleying, which feels very pertinent this week given all of the volley challenges going around the internet. Uh, you know, Technique Tuesday, of course, he's going to give you all some tips on how you can improve your volleys even at home during quarantine and just easy ways to get better on that. Uh, but the other days of the mini break this week, uh, I'm going to be talking about one topic. And last week, I did ATP players' five-year peaks, comparing the best peaks of the best players. And, you know, with all due respect to everyone else, I think Rafa, Djokovic, Federer, just a little bit better than everyone else's career. And, you know, the guy who competed, Ivan Lendl, Pete Sampras, for those four and five spots, that was a good argument. Certainly, you could go back and look at Connors, and his five-year peak was awfully impressive. McEnroe has some incredible years. Of course, that 84 season the best of them all. And I do want to go back to that, and I will go back to that. Uh, But I wanted to switch gears this week and talk a little bit of WTA because I think one of the things when you talk about who's the most accomplished players, who are the most accomplished players, excuse me, of the 21st century in WTA tennis, you know, the first four are so obvious, right? You just look at the Grand Slam rankings right away and you see, well, in the open era, Serena's got 23, Steffi Graf's got 22, Chris Everett's got 18, Martina Navratilova's got 18, and, and that's just in singles, by the way. And you're like, yeah. Those four are better than everyone else. It's really not an argument. What do we do in here? Um, let you know those four are the top four, and you can't even argue that. Um, but you start to look through the rest of the list, and you start to start putting together. Well, you know who's number five? Who accomplished the fifth most? And that's really where things get interesting. And that's the topic I want to explore. Who had the fifth? We'll say most accomplished again. The Paul Anacone term. And if you want to hear the origins why it's most accomplished, not best, go check out that Paul Anacone. Uh, podcast on our cracked interviews feed but I think the slot for the number five in the most accomplished during uh, the open era for the women's game is a fascinating argument and you look at just the slam counts for all of these women and you know Margaret Court has 11 we're not touching Margaret Court on this podcast it's a hot topic for so many reasons that require you know way more depth than just what did she do on the court it also happened a long time ago and you know it's less it's less easy, I suppose, to find YouTube highlights for said topic, uh, but I can watch these other players who I'm going to discuss play and talk about their games, analyze who I thought had the highest upside, look at their five-year peaks, uh, and there's three you know, ends of the spectrum that I wanted to talk. There's one on the far end of her peak was incredible, and for reasons outside of her control, it ended early. There's someone I'm going to talk about who, just in terms of longevity, that is a staple of her career, and then there's the person in the middle who I'm going to talk about today. But, you know, for the sakes of this exercise, I want you all to know, for those keeping score at home, we're going to say, what about Margaret Court? What about Billie Jean King? What about Yvonne uh, Gulagong? Well, that's a little bit before my time. And with all due respect to 70s tennis, um, maybe I'll get back to it depending on how long this quarantine lasts. But I'm really looking, you know, 1980s, 1990s and onwards. Um, And so there are three players I want to look at this week to compare. Who was the most accomplished? Because I think they're all fascinating. And without giving away all three players uh, now, I think they all can make a case for having accomplished the fifth most in, you know, the modern era of tennis. And The player I want to start with today, because her five-year peak was fascinating. She was someone who, right as I was getting into tennis, was ascending to the top of the game, was playing out her prime years, 
and that's Justine Ennen. And you look at what Justine Ennen accomplished at a surface level and, you know, even just what she did over the course of her career before we get into uh, the peak of her career, that five-year stretch. I mean, seven-time Grand Slam champion. She made one, two, three, four, five other Grand Slam finals, won something like 50 titles over the course of her career, won you know, multiple year-end finals, finished number one in the rankings three times. Uh, she was, you know, just on a surface level, it's phenomenal, right? She spent all of these weeks at number one as well. You talk about her one-handed backhand. Uh, talk about another phenomenal story as well. As I've been watching, you know, these matches for CR Classics and listening to the commentators and going back, and you know, the story of Justine Ennen is not one I was familiar with. But you know, very early in her life, her mother was very influential in her tennis game. She was the one who showed her the sport, who introduced her to it. Um, and very early on, unfortunately, she passed away. And so, uh, for Ennen, she met her coach Carlos Rodriguez. Um, Shortly after her mother's death in 2000, er, in 1995, after a conflict between Ennen and her father, Rodriguez really became that father figure. And, you know, there's a lot more that goes into that. That is not the focus of today, but it's a fascinating topic to see someone with Justine Ennen's background go on to have the success she did. It was just exceptional and such a graceful player. That one-handed backhand, of course, just separated her from so many other players during this time period. Her movement on the clay, the spin she put on the ball, just you know, just how well-rounded her game was. It was just fascinating. It was such a contrast to you know Serena Williams, who is in the peak, if not ascending to the peak of her game. Uh, you know, she also always was great at moving forward. Her slice backhand, all of these different things her you know you almost want to say male Federer is the is just a bold comparison for anyone but that was the way she could attack and yeah the serve wasn't the best but just the way she moved and took balls early Justine Ennen was an incredible talent and you know again now you start to talk about well let's look at her five-year prime could she be argued as the most accomplished player of you know or the fifth most accomplished player outside of Graf Navratilova Serena and of course at the top of that list Chris Everett as well Um, and you start to look at her five-year prime and, you know, we did this for a lot of players last week. Only Federer uh, officially was over the 90% mark. Federer and Lendl were the only players over a five-year stretch of time who had won over 90% of their matches. Djokovic was at like 89.8%. Justine Ennen over 2003 to 2007. 53-6 and uh, was her average record on tour. That's a winning percentage of about... 89.3%. And you have to keep in mind, she only played nine events, uh, 39 total matches in both 04 and 05. That just shows you how good she was uh, before that, you know, before those two years. And by the way, you know, injuries in 05 are one of the things that got to her in 04 was the same sort of, uh, you know, same sort of deal where it's just, it's hard to stay healthy for that long on tour, especially uh, when you're at the top of the game. And, you know, you just look though at her career, what she accomplished again, she goes in this stretch, she goes 75 and 11 in 2003. That year, she won, <clears throat> excuse me, Charleston, Berlin, Zurich, and uh, she also made semifinals of the tour championships, 
wins the French Open, her first major of her career, wins the U.S. Open as well in those tournaments, and then knocks off Kleister's 0-4 in the French Open final. The U.S. Open beats Kleister's again 5-1. She then starts out 2004 by knocking off Kleister's for a third time, 6-3, 4-6, 6-3 in the final. And early on, that was one of her things. She clearly had Kleister's number. They're both Belgian. They're obviously familiar with one another's games. Uh, but Enin just had her. And, you know, in those first years, oh, 2004, she gets injured a little bit as well as in 2005. But she goes on to win the Sunburn Olympics. She wins the gold medal in Athens that year in the final, I believe. She knocked off Emily Moresmo, 6-3, 6-3. She was uh, Belgium's only gold medal in those Olympics, and that's obviously just an incredible accomplishment for her. But you start looking again into the deep dives of her five-year prime. Over this five-year stretch, 03 to 07, she, she's playing 12.6 events per season, which, again, both really hurt by those nine, back-to-back nine-event years in 04 and 05. Although I'll mention, in 04 and 05, nine events, she won slams in both of those events. In 04, her nine events, it was she won the Australian Open, she won Indian Wells, she made five total finals and won five titles during that stretch. Uh, so, you know, five, nine tournaments, five finals, five titles, that's an phenomenal year, even if it's a limited sample size, but 12.6 events per season. She made the finals in 66.7, so two-thirds of her events over that stretch. She's averaging about eight finals, 8.4 finals a year. She's also winning over 52% of her tournaments, so 6.6 titles per 12.6 events. The only players that were over 50% were uh, Federer, Djokovic, and Lendl. So that's the sort of elite company she's keeping in terms of five-year primes in terms of comparison. Now, that doesn't get to the women's side again, but I'm saying uh, just during this stretch, to be in that range, that means you're winning at that sort of rate. That's just ridiculous. And again, considering she played 39 matches total uh, in in both 04 and 05, that she earned 71 top 10 wins, was averaging 14.2 per year. Uh, that's exceptional. And I mean, you look at it at a granular level, that 2007 season she played in, we'll get to 2007 in a second, uh, 2006 and 2007, but 2007, she had 22 top 10 wins. Only Djokovic on the men's side and Nadal were the only people who had over 20 in a year. Federer may have had one season, but that's just an exceptional year in that 07 season. You look at who she beat. Uh, She didn't play the world number one at all, but she was just dominating players like Yelena Yankovic and, you know, Kuznetsova, Williams, Moresmo, post-prime, Prime Moresmo, but still Ivanovic, Sharapova. You know, when she went on to win the year-end championships in Madrid, she actually earned five top ten wins. She beats Chuck Fedotsky, Yankovic, Bartoli, Ivanovic, Sharapova. Uh, that's obviously a really good year. That French Open run she had quarterfinals, semifinals, finals. She beat Serena, then she beat Yankovic, then she beat Ivanovic, and she didn't drop a set in any of those three matches. So that's how good she was in 2007. But her best season, clearly... 2006. She goes 60 and 8, at least in terms of uh, tournament, uh, how many tournaments she played and the results she had in those tournaments. She plays 13 tournaments, 
She made 10 finals. That's ridiculous. In those 13 tournaments, she won six titles. Those six titles in 06 uh, all came at, you know, high-level events. She won Dubai over Sharapova. <clears throat> she won the French Open over Kuznetsova. She won in Eastbourne. She won in New Haven, and then she won the year-end championships. And, you know, it's a one-slam season. It might be what you're thinking, but she made the final of every slam in 2006. She lost to Moresmo, had to retire after cramping in the Australian Open final. Of course, she came back to then win the French Open uh, over Kuznetsova. She lost to Moresmo <clears throat> at Wimbledon, and then she lost to uh, Sharapova in the 06 uh, Grand Slam, in the 06 U.S. Open final. But of course, in 06 that year, she goes on, as I mentioned, to win the Tour Championship. She wins it the next year in 07. And, you know, 06, 07, there were some injur- injuries to Serena, but you talk about players like Kleisters, Moresmo, Sharapova. Uh, whom else am I forgetting here? A Lindsay Davenport. I mean, the list of good players in the 2000s on the women's side, it was a stack time. So many champions during that time. You look at players who won Grand Slams during the 2000s. I mean, there are a bunch of them. Players like Capriati, I forgot, Kuznetsova, Kleisters, Davenport, Miskina, uh, Mary Pierce's tail end, Anna Ivanovic as well. And Ennin was... You know, you look at the decade, it went Serena won two, uh, won 10 Grand Slams that decade. She's obviously number one. Uh, but then Ennin and Venus were the only players to win more than three. They both won seven during the 2000 single slams. And, you know, so that puts Ennin at the top of the conversation by the slam total. You look again at her major stretch during that time. She didn't play three of the 20, but seven titles, three finals. So she made the finals of half of the slams during this time. That's exceptional. Three semifinals, two fourth rounds. The second round, the first round, you want to ding her for that. That's fine. She's also an Indian Wells champion, a Rogers Cup champion, two-time Charleston, two-time Berlin, two-time Zurich, four-time Dubai champ. I mentioned it already. She won the Olympic gold in 2004. <clears throat> two year-end titles. She was a three-time year-end number one, and if you want to knock her because in 04 and 05, again, she got injured. Well, you know, playing nine events, she still finished the year six and eight, respectively, during those seasons. That's nuts, and you know, she was 35 and four in 04. She won 90% of her matches during that season. She was 87% the next year, and the thing is, as exceptional as that 2006 season was, that 2007 season was even better. Did she make the final of every Grand Slam? No, but she played three of them. She won two of them. You know, French Open, she knocks off in the final there. Ani Ivanovic won in two at the U.S. Open. She knocked off Kuznetsova one in three. She did lose in the Wimbledon semifinals, but of course you go back and look who she lost to in that event. She lost to Bartoli, you know, one six. Uh, seven five six one. So she, if you remember, she had chances in that match. She had also beaten Serena uh, the day before, and so again, fourteen tournaments. She made eleven finals. She won ten titles. Sixty three and four is a ninety four percent win percentage. She lost literally once on a hard court, once on clay, once on grass, once on carpet. It's crazy to me that they were playing carpet events still all the way back in two thousand seven. But you look at this stretch of play she had during then. Uh, you know, February she wins in Dubai. She wins in Doha and Qatar. Loses in the final of Miami. That's fine because, you know, in May, June, August, September, she goes on to win in Poland, win the French Open, win in Eastbourne again, win the Rogers Cup, win the U.S. Open, win in Stuttgart, win in Zurich, win the year-end championships. 
I mean, I you look at that stretch again. She, it was one of those twenty. She she won something. I think it was over twenty straight matches at that point. She was just exceptional uh, during this stretch of time. And you know, by an on an efficiency mark, you just look at how good she was. Points adjusted for scale. Uh, she was in terms of the two thousand seven her two thousand seven season. The only person who has gotten, if you use the current point system and translated what 2007 <clears throat> looked like to now, the only person uh, who has ever gotten more points in a season than Justine Ennin is Serena Williams, who in 2013 had over 1,000 more points. That's crazy, by the way. In that 2013, she won 95% of her matches. Again, these are some of her records compared to other year-end number ones. Uh, you know, she uh, Second-highest most ranking points. By the way, 03 and 06 seasons for Ennin are third and fourth on that list. In terms of tournaments won, she won 10 and 07, 8 and 03. That's second and third behind Serena's 2013 season. You look at, in terms of win percentage, her 94%, second to Serena. 2013 season, 95.12% is what she won. The lead over the number two player, Ennin 07, had a 39.5% lead in percentage of rankings points over the number two that year, who was Kuznetsova. She, by every metric in this 21st century of tennis, it was Serena 1, and then at her best, Justine and in number two, just that individual greatness. When she was healthy and on court and playing events at a steady clip, she was winning them. I already went through. She made finals two-thirds of them. She won over half of them. All of these numbers speak to the fact that when she was at her best, she was the best. And I already said three year-end number ones, but you look at her, you know, the rivalries she played and her scoreboards against some of the other top players in this time. In her career, she's six and eight against Serena. But guess what? She's four and three at the slams over Serena Williams. For people who have played Serena over five times, I can't imagine there's many, if any, who hey, great shot, great where I'm there, who have winning records over her during that time period between 03 and 07. Ennin beat her in the Roland Garros semifinals. Ennin beat her in the Roland Garros quarterfinals, in the Wimbledon quarterfinals, and the U.S. Open quarterfinals. Serena Serena got her in the 03 Wimbledon semis, but four and one during this stretch over Serena. Four and one between 03 and 07. That's just that's you know physically maybe I guess 13 is the best year of Serena's career as I just read but you know that's still a really good Serena that Justine Ennin was beating she played her almost to a draw you know she she owned her on the clay courts that's where she had her most success and you know they played so many times of course over the course of their careers and Serena did end up edging her as I mentioned 8-6 but to play the best player maybe in tennis history to a draw that speaks to how good you were, and it wasn't just Serena. You start moving down the list against Venus. Venus was actually the player and uh, struggled against the most. She goes two and I believe seven uh, in her career lifetime against uh, Venus Williams, and you know four and in those two wins came in the semifinals of the U.S. Open 2007, as well as Berlin 2001. In between that stretch, it was all Venus, but they played the majority of their matches before 03, and Venus uh, got the better of and and then obviously during that five-year prime 03 to 07, they just didn't match up that often. But when they did, they were one in one against one another. So you can sort of throw that one out the window. But now you start to look at some of the other ones. Enin versus Sharapova. Uh, again, both players 03 to 07. That's a damn good Maria Sharapova who won her first major title at the 2004 Wimbledon. 
And an owner, 7-3 over Sharapova. She beat her in the French Open uh, third round. She beat her at the WTA Tour Championships in back-to-back years, uh, 06 and 07. She also knocked her off in the Australian Open semis, the French Open quarterfinals back in 06 and 05. Now, to Sharapova's credit, she did beat Ennin in that U.S. Open final in 2006, 4-4. She did beat her at the 08 Australian Open quarterfinals, but again, notch to Ennin in terms of her winning record in terms of against Amelie Moresmo, and they have played some battles over the years, of course, as well. Ennin 8-6 overall, that could argue her biggest contemporary <clears throat> of the era. Moresmo did beat her in that Australian Open final in 06. She also got her in the Wimbledon final in 06. But for Ennin, you know, uh, she Ennin may not have beaten her often at the slams, but everywhere else was Ennin territory. She beat her in the WTA Championship final in 2006. She beat her uh, in the Berlin semifinal, the Eastbourne final, the Dubai final, Canada Masters semifinal. So, of course, she got the Olympic gold medal over Amelie Moresmo as well. It was a back-and-forth affair, certainly very Serena Ennin-esque, only in this case, Ennin Serena Moresmo is playing the role of Justine Ennin, and maybe we will be examining Amelie Moresmo as well uh, later on on in this series. You talk about Kleisters and Ennin, two players who are from the same country. Of course, there's a rivalry between the two uh, in terms of all of the matches they played overall. Kim Kleisters, 13-12 to 12 edge, which is actually crazy to hear, although that keeps in mind the fact that they played three times in 2010. Kleisters got all three wins during that season, so before then, it was 12-10 Ennin. You look at the Grand Slams, Ennin 5-3 over Kim Kleisters. You look at where they happened, uh, you know, in terms of we, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but Ennin knocked her off in that Roland Garros final uh, in 2003. She also knocked her off in the U.S. Open final 2003, Australian Open final 2004, 06 French Open semifinals, 06 Wimbledon semifinals, all going the way of Kleisters. And so, you know, in those big swims for Kleisters, the early wins at the Slams came before that 2003 season, before Justine Ennin's, again, ascension really happened. So you give the edge to and in there, you look again, uh, you just go a little bit beyond that quickly. You know, players like Elena Dementieva, and it's 11 and 2 over them. It's really a no brainer. She was outside of Serena, in my opinion, at her best when she was playing her best. Uh, if not equal to Serena, then the next best thing. And so you start to make the case for Ennin. And look, one one knock against her is certainly longevity. The fact that her playing career, the, the majority of it, I, I mean, you, you can't factor for injuries, right? You never want to knock a player for injuries, but that, you know, 03 to 07 is really where she did most of her winnings. That prime really happening from like 01 to 07. That was really her eight-year span of eight year excuse me seven year span of you know her most dominant play and of course she was still good in other seasons but just injuries and all these various things in 2010 she did make that Australian Open final and what a run that was but various injuries and just her longevity is certainly a knock against her right I mean you know a 10 year playing career is really exceptional um, but compared to someone who I'm going to talk about later in the week it's not the sort of longevity you expect from your greats obviously guys like Roger Federer who's been going since like oh one and uh you know i i don't want to give away a name because if i say this name you'd be like oh yeah obviously that's who you're talking about later on in the week but you know she's sort of that middle ground she played seven really prime years of tennis 10 total in her career and 
it was an exceptional career. Seven Grand Slams. I told you where that puts her in the list of Grand Slam champions in the Open era. She is ranked right, I believe, at, tied for eighth with Gulagong, with Venus, and you know, right behind Billie Jean King, Salas Court, and then the Big Four. So, you know, Grand Slam wise, I think she earned enough titles to certainly be in the conversation. You want to again knock her for longevity? That's fine. But I will point out again during this. T- five-year stretch of her best. She won 33 of her 50 career titles. She made 53 of her 68 career finals. You know, um, the fact that she was year-end number one, 03, 06, 07, she made the final in every major in 06, three straight French Open titles from 05 to 07, four out of five during this four-year prime, or five-year prime as well. Her five-year prime's up there with the best in WTA history. And again, the only knock against Justine Annan is her longe- the longevity. It was a five-year prime for sure and an eight-year span of dominance, but it wasn't the 10-year span. It wasn't spanning across multiple decades. When she was great, she might have been the greatest, but it wasn't you know, a prolonged period of dominance. She you know, was very good for a little bit, and then unfortunately she got, just had injuries and all these various different things um, slow her down. But... In terms of greatness, you I heard you know she beat her rivals all of these titles. Do you want to say she's the fifth most accomplished player in the in the Open era? There's a case for it, right? I just listed all of these things and her ceiling, her at her peak. She is as good as any other player on tour. I think it's a fascinating test case. I'm fascinated to hear what you all think and who are some other people you would throw up there with her. You know, compare it to a Hingis who's been around the game of tennis now since the 90s, or you know, Sharapova may have just retired, but she put in a solid 12 to 15 years. Is longevity something you? value more than I do. For me, I think the the upside of Justine Nen in four finals at, at the majors in one season, that 07 season as well, when she was at her best, I think it was better than, than players like a Maria Sharapova or a Martina Hengis, who, you know, won her five slams in a pretty short span of time, but, you know, and then played for a while after that as well. But I just think the ceiling of Justine N and what she was able to accomplish over her period, uh, over the period of her career, it, it's enough to put her in the discussion. And I think there are two other players who belong in that discussion right alongside of her. And as I mentioned, I will be talking about those two players later in the week. Should I give you the names? I'm going to not give you the names. I think you can guess them. And, of course, I tweet out the night before the podcast the stats of the player I'm about to talk about. So to all of you who follow me at Great Shot Pod, yes, player number one that I tweeted out last night is, in fact, the stats of the five-year prime of Justine Ennin. Who's certainly one of, if you know, one of the greatest players of the Open era will be a first ballot Hall of Famer if she isn't already. Well, you know, one, just one of our game's great champions, and it was really fun going back to explore her career. I look forward to talking about her on a CR Classic that I'm not going to give away, but I promise we have scheduled in the future. Uh, that being said. That's today's mini break topic, and as I mentioned, I'm going to talk about two other players later in the week, and then on Friday, give you all my take on which of those three players deserves the spot of the fifth most accomplished uh, women's singles player in the open era 
Uh, but that'll do it for today. Uh, again, if you've missed anything we have done over these past couple of weeks, Super Producer Daniel Westhoff has been up to all sorts of amazing things on our YouTube channel. You search Crack Rackets in your search bar. It's three clicks, 30 seconds. We've all got time to do it. Let's be honest. We all have the YouTube app on our phones. You're in the bathroom while you're doing what you got to do. It's three clicks, and then I won't have to keep asking people. As soon as we get to 1,000 subscribers, I will stop bringing this up. But until we do, you know, go look at what Super Producer Daniel Westhoff is up to, whether it's overserved with our fifth episode coming out later today, whether it's turning all of our interviews into a video podcast, whether it's CR Classics, which, as I mentioned, our look at the best matches in tennis history uh, mixed in with some highlights from those matches and our analysis, all of that found on our YouTube channel. You don't want to miss any of it, so go subscribe. You don't want to miss any of the podcasts either, so please go like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, the Great Shot podcast. We've got some cool news uh, from some upcoming sponsors, some giveaways in the works, so be on the lookout for all of that, and of course, when the time comes uh, to qualify for those, all you'll have to go do is leave a little like on our or a review on Apple, on iTunes, wherever it may be, uh, but please like, rate, share, subscribe, share with your friends, listen to these podcasts. We so appreciate all of the support we continue to get. We also appreciate our Patreon supporters who have gotten a sneak look at some of the content we have, a sneak preview, a sneak look, a sneak preview, hey, great shot of some of the content we have coming up at Cracked Records. We've got some really cool projects underway. Uh, obviously, Overserved and CR Classics are new as well, but we've got some other stuff in the works that we think you all will enjoy, so be on the look out for that and again interviews with Paul Anacone, Claire Liu, Christian, Dennis Kudla, Bethany Maddox Sands, Chris Woodruff and more all on our Cracked Interviews podcast. We will have a college related GSP later this week. I think I've got something like 13 interviews in, or 13 pods scheduled for the week so you know if that's a sneak preview uh, we've got some really cool stuff coming out so be on the lookout for all of that. Shout out as always to the super producers Max Flagner and Daniel Westoff for the fuck of an editing job they do day in day out all of this content made possible because of them shout out as of course as always to our friends at Diadem Sports for all of your tennis needs go to their website diademsports.com use that promo code CR50 get 50% off of your order uh, but with that being said for super producers Max Flagner and Daniel Westoff and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.